Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Owens. Now, much of recent debate about geopolitical competition focuses primarily on how issues like the U.S.-China rivalry have played out in Europe, South and Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and the African continent. But geopolitical developments and global political tensions, of course, have also played out in Latin America. Four countries in Latin America made a turn to the Pacific in 2011 through the Pacific Alliance, and Latin American countries have recently been drawn into global discussions around technological competition between China and the U.S. and other issues. Actors like China are increasingly diversifying their engagements with the region through development and trade, but also military cooperation to the chagrin of the U.S. However, countries in the region aren't passive actors and in some ways also have the ability to drive global politics. So how is geopolitics playing out in Latin America, and how are countries in the region shaping developments in global economics, technology, rules, and norms? Joining me today are two of my colleagues from the IISS's London office. Dr. Irene Mia is the editor of the Armed Conflict Survey and Senior Fellow for Latin America and Conflict Security and Development. Amanda Lapo is Research Associate for Defense and Military Analysis. She contributes to the research, collection, and validation of defense and military data for the IISS's flagship publication, The Military Balance, as well as for other IISS publications and databases. Welcome back to the podcast, Amanda and Irene. Hey, Maya. Nice to be back. Hi, Maya. Thank you very much. So maybe let's start with a really broad question. How has the shifting global geopolitical environment impacted Latin America? Irene. Yeah, it's a very good question, Maya. As you mentioned in your in your introduction, I think the main uh, uh, nexus to look at is really U.S.-China, right? Because it's if you look at uh, uh, the Latin American order, is not anymore a unipolar order with the U.S. as the main uh, actor uh, looking after its backyard. But you have seen uh, in the in, in past years, from the from mid two thousand, you've seen really China making big inroads in the in the region. So I think in reality, what we are seeing now, it's um, we're 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 in a bit of a wait and see mode, given that obviously um, that has been, as I said, uh, provoked on one side by the fact that China has increased its uh, economic statecraft in the world and in the region, but also by uh, a progressive disengagement of the U.S., uh, which has culminated, I would say, under the Trump years. So as I said, we are all waiting in a way to see what's going to happen with Biden. Obviously, there are big expectations on uh, on uh, on him re-engaging with the region and therefore actually uh, shifting again the balance towards the U.S. But so far, I have to say, um, there are a little sign in that respect, but not much has happened. I mean, uh, it was saying that, of course, we have seen changes in the in the most notable uh, and most controversial uh, policies that Trump had adopted in terms of migration. Um, the U.S. is 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 actually battling at the moment uh, a major migration crisis. If you look at apprehension at the border in the last three months, there have been something like uh, uh, 200,000 apprehension um, every month from March. Uh, and uh, the, the most dramatic uh, element has been probably the, the fact that a lot of those people are actually mi- uh, uh, minor uh, coming to the coming to the, to the doing the, 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 the travel and the, and the journey to the U.S. without their parents. So it's quite uh, from a humanitarian point of view, it's quite dramatic. 
Uh, but I think so. If we look at what Biden has have done uh, with respect to the to the border and to the migration, which I would say will continue to be the the main focus, right? Because of the domestic implication of uh, of uh, migration flows from Central America uh, to to the U.S. Yes, yes, um, uh, change and yes, and yes, cancel some of the most controversial. Uh, um, uh, Trump policies, including uh, constructing the, f- the famous uh, wall uh, between uh, the U.S. and Mexico, and some other and some other um, uh, policies. He also has uh, given temporary um, protection to Venez- Venezuelan uh, already present in the in the U.S. Something around 300,000 people. He, he has kept some of the Trump policy, uh, notably on a historical low cap on the number of refugees, and also limit on asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I think the most important uh, part of his policy towards the, um, Central America has been this focus on the on the root causes of migration, so climate change, uh, um, uh, corruption, but also creating opportunities in the notably in the countries of the of the Northern Triangle in Central America. Uh, also, four billion dollars have been earmarked uh, in four years uh, to really create those condition at home in those countries. I think the challenge there is going to be. Um, Funding an interlocutor in the region, because as we have all uh, sadly uh, witnessed uh, during uh, during Trump year, is that there's been also a complete disregard for rule of law, or you know, to- putting pressure on those countries really to comply with uh, uh, a rule of law standards. So, at the moment, the situation in Latin America has deteriorated from a rule of law point of view. Uh, I, I won't name name, but obviously El Salvador is a, is a concern, but also also Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua. We have election uh, uh, very 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 soon. I don't know if you have followed, but basically four of the candidates have been arrested, of the opposition candidates. So I think the problem for Biden would be implementing his policy, uh, which in any case is going to take a long time, right? Because we won't see uh, changes uh, in terms of uh, condition in Central America in, uh, in in the short term. But it's going to really to be the, the, to find. The counterpart to do so in the region because obviously the government are not uh, necessarily the 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 the, the, the good the good um, interlocutor for Biden. The other big uh, I think area of uh, geopolitical contention, which is Venezuela, um, and it, when I say really, it's really the, the theater where uh, the, the the great power competition is playing out in Latin America. We have the intervention of uh, China from an economic point of view, but more from a from a diplomatic and and political and uh, military point of view. We have uh, Iran, we have Russia, we have uh, Turkey. Amanda will tell you more about that. But basically, what we have seen with respect to Venezuela is that Biden hasn't done much in the sense that he hasn't uh, revoked some of the sanctions. He hasn't really taken a lead so far in engaging in a a negotiation between uh, the two presidents uh, of Venezuela. Uh, I think there, and also with respect to Cuba, which is the other uh, other variable in the equation, also with respect to Venezuela, um, I think it's we will have to see whether he, he would think it's worth really um, going against uh, his uh, domestic constituency in Florida uh, to really take the lead on uh, on uh, you know a negotiation process between uh, Guaido and Maduro. Or whether it will let other people actually, or other other actors, including the EU, the EU um, leading the leading the process. 
the other aspect I would say, uh, you mentioned, Maya, it's really this aspect of, um, um, the, I would say, the, the tech war, right? And Latin America, it's really one of the, of, of the, of the, of the region where this is playing out quite uh, massively with a lot of uh, um, in infrastructure investment, uh, also in the digital infrastructure by China, the involvement of, um, of uh, China uh, corporate, including Huawei in the in the um, deployment of the of, of the um, uh, 4G, but also I guess the next the next uh, uh, the next uh, area of of, of uh, war is going to be really uh, the the 5G. I guess there as well we'll have to see what's going to be the 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 stance of the U.S. in a way for Latin America. It's very hard now to really uh, cut off China from that because obviously China has become a very important partner for the region uh, commercially and uh, and uh, investment trade and loans. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, obviously uh, Latin America is going to be increasingly uh, cash strapped uh, after COVID, so obviously uh, China is a is a is a easy option there. So I think. Realistically, it's probably going to be a competition. A competition is going to be also a coexistence between China and, and the U.S. Just to pick up on something that you said, Irene, um, you talked about the, the backsliding of democratic uh, norms and, and, and governance in uh, certain countries in Central America and perhaps even Latin America. How is Biden's approach to, its, to the U.S.'s foreign policy based on democratic values going to play out in the region? And how will that be received? That's that's precisely, I think, the the matter of the of the question at the moment. You know, I think in a way for uh, Latin America and Central America, uh, particularly, um, the Trump year were kind of easy because it was very it was very uh, easy in a way to deal with Trump. The only thing he was interested in was migration. He wasn't that interested. Or now, uh, countries were doing apart from really making sure that the, the migra migration was controlled in a way. Now, as you mentioned, uh, Biden uh, is focusing very much on corruption, rule of law. And I think this is going to be an issue. It's going to be an issue with many countries in Central America, as I mentioned. It's going to be an issue even with Mexico, because in a way, you know, in, we have seen lately in, uh, in Mexico, there has been uh, quite, a, quite a concern in terms of freedom of the press, um, some, some, some attitude and, and also attack from the president on, on, uh, on, uh, on journalists and people that, that disagree with his, with his views. So I think... The problem with that is that for Biden, uh, corruption and, you know, fighting corruption and uh, rule of law seems to be, and, and rightly so, seems to be at the center of his way of engaging with Latin America. I think this is going to have, a, could have, and it's already having some kind of geopolitical implication because obviously China is there. So it's, uh, and China is much, uh, is much less uh, um, worried about those kind of issues. And we have seen it already with El Salvador. El Salvador is actually moving towards China much more. We have seen it in Venezuela, of course. Um, I mean, it's interesting, even in terms of uh, vaccine diplomacy. I guess we'll have to discuss about vaccine diplomacy. This is a big topic. But if you see, for instance, how AMLO uh, or um, uh, López Obrador in Mexico, uh, when, uh, you know, it was actually uh, at some point begging Biden to send the vaccine to Mexico, Biden didn't send a vaccine. He just moved to Putin, and Putin was very happy to comply and send vaccine. And so I think it's... Uh, Again, it's interesting to see, and I think, to be honest, this um, uh, focus on the rule of law is going to play out quite significantly in terms of geopolitical realignment or alignment in the region. So it would be fair then to say that today when we look at the region, we see a diversification of the countries who have interests in Latin America. 
is this something that's particularly new or have these actors been present and interested in, in the region for uh, a number of years now already? So I think it's, uh, it, it, it is, I would, I would reply from two points of view. One, it's really, if you look at the actual data, the R data, the, the trade and economic data, then you see that obviously, um, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, China is really the, the country which has made inroads in the region. So if you look at the trade data at the moment, China is, the, is actually the largest trading partner if you exclude Mexico, because Mexico is still very much um, uh, uh, tied to the US uh, for, for the type of, you know, uh, the, 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 the NAFTA and the maquila kind of uh, production uh, pattern. That being said, uh, it is true that there has been a lot of um, uh, talks, a lot of uh, initiative really to uh, diversify um, uh, trade partners and, and you know, commercial and, and investment partner in the, in, in the past few years. Uh, you mentioned the Pacific Alliance, which is the, the, big, uh, the big star in that respect. Um, so basically, really, if you look at the Pacific Alliance, which was re really putting together the what I call the Pacific country of Latin America, so um, Mexico, Peru, Chile, and Colombia, the idea was really to, they, the Pacific Alliance really make of the idea of projecting towards Asia and towards the rest of the world as their mantra. So the idea was really, we need to diversify, we need to, we need to um, uh, really reach out to the rest of the world, we need to reach out to Asia. India is another, is another uh, country which has shown increasingly interest trade-wise trade in the region. There has been increase in, uh, in, uh, in trade, bilateral trade between, between the two regions um, from a very small um, uh, number. So obviously it's not a huge uh, number yet. Middle East, there's been quite a lot of interest also from the Middle East uh, in the commodities and food uh, commodities from Latin America. I think on a side note, it's quite interesting because unfortunately what we're seeing is that there is a, um, uh, a I would say, a, uh, a, re a recreation on the global south scale of this kind of periphery center pattern of trade of Latin America, whereby Latin America unfortunately continues to remain the provider of commodities and is not really pro uh, providing manufacturing or, you know, evolving in the in the in the supply chain uh, in the value chain uh, as you know uh, we're going back to the 60s and 70s theories of dependency for latin america so i would say then there is as i said there is quite a lot of interest lots of initiative but if you look really at the numbers the numbers have, haven't shifted much also if i can add to that i think things are changing also in latin america in the past two years there is there is probably less appetite to engage with the rest of the world and this is something that is interesting because if you look at Latin America in the past 10, 15 years, Latin America in a way was swimming against uh, against uh, up up uptide, not in a way because upstream. Sorry, uh, I repeat, Latin America was swimming uh, upstream uh, in a way because actually uh, it was the the only region which was very very pro globalization and you know you had uh, both on the political discourse but also you know if you look at the polls people were really much about, uh, for opening up to the rest of the world. I say from 2019, really, the, 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 the discourse has shifted very much also, you know, with all the protests we have seen in the region towards refocusing really on the problems of the region, having to do with inequalities, the, you know, and, and this kind of shifting away from, uh, from uh, a consensus around uh, uh, liberal, uh, neoliberal, neoliberal values. And what you have seen also with the pandemic is that what people are asking for and, uh, and therefore a politician uh, move to, it's really more um, uh, big role of the state, 
let's focus uh, on the on the issues in uh, domestic domestic issues. And of, if you look at uh, you know uh, Mexico or Brazil, again, you know Brazil has always been very very inward looking, but Mexico has always been a champion of uh, of free trade and being open. With Lopez Obrador, we are moving back to really focusing internally. And the same you're seeing now in Pacific Alliance, and that's something that uh, I just I, I wrote a blog on that three months ago. Now I need to change it completely because, in a way, with the election in the region, uh, we are moving even there. I mean, do we still have a Pacific Alliance? Is it still uh, relevant? We have, uh, if you look at uh, what's 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 happening in uh, you know Peru, where we had election last weekend, uh, Castillo won this. This person came from out from nowhere, uh, uh, very much, you know, uh, leftist and very much uh, inward looking. Chile is moving probably in the in the in the same in, in a similar direction. We have seen with the election for the for the um, uh, constitution constitutional assembly. Again, as, uh, the majority of candidates are very much. Uh, uh, new candidate, people that don't have experience in uh, in poly in in politics. So I think. There, the, what we are seeing, and probably that would be my forecast if I had to do a forecast, is less appetite from Latin America, from the Latin American side, even less appetite to engage uh, with the rest of the world. You've mentioned China a number of times, Eden, and I want to do a little bit more of a deep dive into the case of uh, China's engagement in the region. Because, of course, while we initially knew that the Belt and Road Initiative didn't extend much further than Europe or um, the Pacific and, and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it, of course, increasingly does extend to Latin America. And you've mentioned the increasing trade ties and investments that China has made across the region. But, of course, there's another element to that relationship, and that's uh, in terms of military engagement as well. And here I want to bring in Amanda. And I know, Amanda, you've been working um, quite recently on this in some detail. What does military-to-military uh, -military engagement look like between uh, the PRC and countries in the region? So we can definitely say that, um, as as Irene mentioned before, uh, China has been making uh, substantial progress in making an inroad into the region and become like, what can we say, uh, basically the third uh, largest uh, player after the US and Russia in, in the region. Um, uh, of course, we can say that um, China's People Liberation Army has been using military diplomacy to strengthen and expand its defense relation in South America, especially in the last decade or so. Um, so to, to achieve that, um, it has been fostering um, a wide range of activities, um, including um, bilateral high-level and low-level military visits, uh, port calls, uh, military training, academic exchanges, um, and military operations other than war, which usually include um, disaster relief operations and humanitarian assistance, uh, not to mention, of course, um, um, military equipment donation, which leads me to the fact that even um, defense equipment export um, has been increasing, China, the Chinese one has been increasing in the region. So we can see that, although I, it's fair to say that um, the pace at which these uh, initiatives um, are progressing, um, it's, it's very different across the region. Uh, we can definitely uh, note that there has been a progress uh, from basically China not being present at, present at all in, in Latin America to be, for instance, like Venezuela's first uh, um, armed uh, provider 
uh, right before uh, the, the the crisis that hit the country very badly. Um, so, uh, in terms of military diplomacy, what is interesting to to note is that um, basically. Um, China's um, agreements uh, signed with Latin America uh, in terms of defense and security are usually part of like wider framework agreements that encompass uh, economic and technology um, and environmental um, agreements and and um, within the countries. And this is actually indicative of the fact that um, security and defense is just like one of the aspects that is China is focusing on in, in the region. So, which is part of like a wider, um, a wider goal and a wider aim in, in, in the region. Um, but we've been noticing there is the relationship between, especially in South America, which has been, I've been focusing more on, um, have been, have become, uh, more formal and that led to the signature of different agreements. For instance, we have, Venezuela, Argentina, Ecuador, Peru, and Brazil, which have, have established highly structured military diplomatic relationship uh, in, with China, having signed several memorandum of understanding and even comprehensive strategic partnership agreements, and also having established a joint defense committee with uh, China's military authorities to discuss and implement this uh, agreement, which is something which is very, very highly structured and, and formal. Um, these, um, these agreements are usually been signed in high-level bilateral uh, meetings, which have occurred more and more frequently in the region over the past, like, five years or so. Um, and uh, also, China has established some defense fora with, uh, with the region, for instance, like, the PLA's um, Latin America High-Level Defense Forum, which, as is as it's now in its fourth iteration, it's it's a very important hub, especially for military uh, in South America to uh, discuss the issues, um, the the more pressing, the most pressing issues with with China, and uh, this is very interesting because um, the these exchanges have been brought like. Um, Benefits for both parties, uh, and this has enabled uh, um, China to to know better the military institutions and also develop ties in in the region to make more inroads and also to be able to, in a way, um, foster and advance its own values uh, on a, from a geostrategic perspective. Uh, and and gain also the trust and um, uh, of like some of the country's militaries, which is very useful, uh, especially for some countries that have very strong uh, military um, apparatus, uh, very strong military apparatus, which sometimes it's stronger than the government. Um, so also at a lower level, another very interesting factor is that China um, has been using port calls. Um, to um, uh, tighten up its relationship with some of uh, the countries, especially in, in South America, from a commercial perspective, from a military perspective, by, uh, in, by uh, doing some like military exercises and also providing humanitarian assistance through his hospital ship, which is called the Peace Arc, which has toured um, Latin American and uh, the Caribbean, Latin American countries, the Caribbean, and some Central American countries 
to provide medical support to the population that sometimes has been hit with like um, natural disasters, or, but also to train its militaries uh, to provide medical assistance to the population, which is something which is, is very important in Latin America, where the armed forces sometimes have other, other tasks rather than just the traditional ones. Um, uh, in terms of um, equipment trans uh, transfer as well, um, China has been very generous with some of the Latin American countries. Um, initially, I would say like up to 10, 15 years ago, their main relationship uh, was with um, socialist-leaning countries, which were more political, affi politically affiliated with, with China. For instance, Bolivia benefited uh, greatly uh, from over $45 million worth of uh, military equipment donated uh, to uh, from China, ranging from logistic equipment to um, medical military equipment and also um, proper uh, arms and weapons. Um, as but uh, as China's relationship in with other uh, countries in the region expanded, we could see that donations uh, started to uh, focus also on on other countries uh, such as Argentina, uh, Uruguay, uh, which are not uh, traditional uh, traditionally socialist uh, countries, which are usually affiliated to um, to China. And this is also very interesting because um, military um, military donations are usually can also be considered as the beginning of more traditional uh, defense relations, which also um, uh, include uh, proper um, arms exports and, and uh, sales. Right. So a very wide ranging area of engagement then between the P the PLA, the People's Liberation Army of China um, and uh, various different um, traditional, but also newer uh, countries in the region uh, that seek to foster greater ties. And I, I, I commend your area of research, but also note that that fits particularly well into this wider narrative that we've seen under Xi Jinping, of course, whereby Defense now plays a key role in its foreign policy and, and, and um, uh, in its policy and its um, and China's pursuit of its interests uh, abroad. Um, in terms of arms sales and um, arms transfers, Russia has been a traditional partner in some countries in Latin America as well for for this. So, do we see a cooperation or a competition in this area between Russia and China in the region? Um, I would definitely exclude the cooperation uh, bit between the two between the two countries in this particular area. Um, what I have to say is that China has been quite of a discreet um, competitor in a way, um, in the sense that um, it started uh, basically creating its own uh, relationship without uh, openly meddling with with Russia. Uh, but of course, we can say that um, China, in a way, um, saw the main um, the main uh, client for for Russia in the region, which was uh, Venezuela. Uh, so, of course, um, Russia is uh, was a is a traditional uh, arms uh, exporter in the region, as I said, for like mainly uh, socialist leaning countries. 
Um, but um, starting from 2005, uh, we could say that um, Venezuela opened the doors to uh, Chinese um, military and defense industry in general and started procuring, uh, for instance, um, air, air surveillance raiders, um, light attack trainers, and then a wide uh, variety of infantry fighting vehicles and other sort of like logistic equipment that in a way encouraged other countries in the region, starting, as I said, from, from Bolivia to, to then Peru, to, uh, to actually Ben Wagon on uh, the China um, the China side to start procuring uh, military equipment from them as well. So it, uh, this created some sort of uh, market in, in, in the region. Also because, of course, um, because of China's competitive prices, and we're talking about a region where defense budgets are pretty small. Uh, especially for for some countries, um, so um, in in a way, uh, China started to uh, erode the market for Russia. Although I have to say that uh, besides the Venezuela example, and we all know that uh, after uh, 2014, 2015, Venezuela economy collapsed and now procurement, defense procurement uh, programs are basically non-existent. Um, I can say that. Um, China has not managed to um, fully challenge the uh, strong relationship, relationship that some countries have with uh, both the US, uh, Russia, and sometimes even Europe in terms of defense procurement. Um, I have to flag up there have been uh, ve- several issues um, that Latin American and South American countries more specifically encountered with um Chinese defense equipment uh, in terms of like uh, operational capabilities, in terms of contract, in terms of like all different procurement issues um, that uh, didn't make them basically uh, a super reliable um, actor in terms of uh, defense exports. So although there is some activity, um, especially I would say in in uh, some countries, um, it, China has not so fully succeeded in challenging uh, the role of Russia and of course the US. So we've looked at the, the region very much um, through the lens of what other countries are interested in and how they're engaging with the region. But I want to broaden out a little bit again um, to think about what leverage countries in Latin America have to influence geopolitical competition themselves in line with their own interests. Irene, from what you said before, uh, the region is turning inward. So is that even a valid question to ask? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a valid question, I think, because you're right. I mean, I think in general, if you look at the history, the recent history of Latin America, it has been punching uh, way below its weight because, you know, obviously, after all, it's a 600 million people uh, area, you know, it's a Five trillion dollar uh, GDP, so it's not it's not a, 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 a an irrelevant part of the world. In reality, um, in a way, Latin America has been more of a more of a maker of uh, less of a maker of rules than a taker of rules of global rules and geopolitical uh, uh, decisions. I think part of it has to do really with the impossibility the region has had in the past to come up with a common position and to really uh, unify in some fashion. And this is something you see 
you know, I think region, the, the, the region is probably the, the, the best uh, example of, uh, you know, uh, countless experiments of regional integration failed, which is quite remarkable. Look at the G20. You have three Latin American countries part of the G20. Do you ever hear about uh, a Latin America agenda being pushed at the G20? No. So I think... In a way, there is that. As I think now you have this internal, uh, internal, uh, additional order in that sense. But at the same time, I think it it would be a good a good moment for the region to to actually take a place at the global table because I think its geopolitical importance has risen risen a little bit. And I think for a number of reasons. First of all, um, I'm thinking of the, for instance, the pandemic-induced desirability of developing supply chain for essential goods near to home, and home in this case being the U.S. Uh, the, US the, the, the Latin America could actually be, could actually for once leverage its, uh, its closeness to the U.S. to really try to insert itself in those supply chain uh, in a more profitable way for the region. That's one. Second, second geopolitical uh, lever, I think, is the, the importance of Latin America for uh, uh, global climate security. And this is not just for having, you know, obviously the Amazon uh, there, but also the importance. Latin America is probably one of the most biodiverse region in the world. It has lots of potential for developing renewable energies, uh, wind, sun, uh, and all those and all those uh, those things. So I think it's 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 it's, it's importance has increased. Also, I think the importance of Latin America for uh, America's stability and. Uh, because of the nexus between obviously migration crisis and the stability in the US, that's very important as well. And the, and the last thing, and the, probably the, the most important, is the fact that it should be able to leverage a more multi multipolar order in the region, right? And we have seen already a bit of that, but it could be it could be it could be done more because obviously now it's not just having to deal with the U.S. If you if you don't like what the U.S. tells you, there is China, there is uh, Russia, there is a lot of other also other um, sympathetic uh, players there. So I I do think there are there are the condition. The question, as you as you said, Maya, is whether they would want to do so. Uh, because as I said, I do think I do sense a much more uh, a much less appetite for engaging with the rest of the world. Amanda. Um, so um, I also want something that I wanted to add on defense, um, defense industry on um, a regional um, perspective is that um, some countries such as especially Brazil, partially Argentina, um, have uh, their own defense industry, which although it's not very developed, um, they uh, still um, produce uh, enough equipment to partially um, fulfill their internal their internal procurement needs uh, um, on top of, of course procuring from uh, mainly the US and other European countries uh, and also a bit Israel and they also uh, export a little bit within the region. Um, so countries such as for instance Brazil, even Chile and um, partially Argentina, although they they did procure some Chinese uh, equipment, are not very interested in exploring uh, China as uh, a possible, like a major um, provider for uh, arms exports. Fascinating. So limitations to what China can achieve in certain countries. Um, just in terms of, you know, one thing that you said um, about countries perhaps 
leveraging this opportunity to shift their identity or align more closely with certain, within this fragmented geopolitical landscape or, or multipolar geopolitical landscape. Do you think that the recent decision by countries, um, for example, Chile's decision to uh, use a, a, a to sign an agreement with a Japanese uh, company for a submarine, a Pacific submarine cable, instead of, for example, China. Do you think that that's a, a, a do you think that that was an indication of countries uh, aligning themselves more flexibly uh, within the region? Yeah, I do. I do think I do see that happening. I think there is a, a um, an increasing. Um, willingness also to be more flexible in that in that respect right so i think as you mentioned uh, the the chile case but also i think it was quite what i mentioned previously about um, mexico going to russia for vaccine it's quite interesting because you know uh, mexico is really the ally of the us in the in the region and it's uh, it's uh, as they as they always say so so far so far away from god and so near to the us the united states so in a way it's it's uh, it, it was an interesting um an interesting thing. Also, if again, if you look at the vaccine diplomacy um, we have seen in the region, uh, something which is quite impactful, uh, and I wanted to mention, if you look at the number of doses, I was looking yesterday at the number of doses uh, provided to Latin America. China has provided under 65 million doses. The US at the moment, uh, 2.5 to Mexico, just after much begging. So I think even there, it's interesting to see, similar to what um, Amanda was saying, the countries which are not normally aligned to to China, but that's actually very very um, uh, kind of in the center or or liberal or or, or right wing, like Brazil and Uruguay, for instance, they are relying very much Chile. They are relying very much on vaccine coming from Asia, which is something interesting because you wouldn't think that it's in line with their geopolitical the normal geopolitical alignment. At the same time, another thing which is interesting noticing is that you mentioned earlier on the the Belt and Road. 19 countries of Latin America are part of the of the Belt and Road, but you have countries like Brazil or Colombia, which are actually very much um, uh, integrated with China already. I mean, obviously, the, all the all the countries which export commodities in the in the southern cone and in, and in, uh, in the Andean countries are much more connected to to China from a from a trade point of view. Still, they're not part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think there it's quite interesting to think that those countries are are kind of doing this very delicate balancing act between the U.S. and their identity, which is probably more still. Uh, towards the US in terms of you know value common values and and way in which they look at themselves but still keeping keeping China on on the side so i think we're going to see a lot of that going forward this kind of um uh, shifting of uh, of uh, identities and maybe countries with different identities uh, at the same time which i think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting way to uh, to to proceed is very pragmatic and uh, and I think uh, it's probably much more successful than just sticking to one uh, one's identity uh, with uh, with trade uh, uh, politics uh, and uh, and other and other dimensions. Fascinating. Well, we're running out of time, um, but before we sign off, I'd like to ask each of you what the one thing is you'll be watching for in the next few months with regards to your respective areas of research. What should we be watching out for, uh, Amanda? Um, definitely, I will keep having a look at um, People Liberation's army engagement in the region, especially in South America. Um, of course, you know, uh, now we're co like co cooperating on a paper together, scoping 
um, the defense and security implication of their increasing presence in the region. So it's definitely something I will keep an eye on. Great. And Irene? Well, we are now uh, working uh, full speed uh, on the armed conflict survey. So what we are actually working on uh, uh, is looking really at those uh, this shifting uh, identity of cartels and, uh, and criminal groups in Latin America. Uh, towards uh, um, becoming almost political or, or, or quasi-state um, actors. So I think it's uh, it's an interesting area of uh, study. The other thing we're looking at, uh, what I mentioned earlier on, is really climate security. So really looking at Latin America uh, role in that more general uh, global global issues, in particular with the, uh, the, the, the issue of funding coming from the U.S. to Central America, and now those funding will be used uh, and how to use them in the best way uh, among the, the current challenges uh, of govern governability and governance and corruption. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you both for your insightful conversations uh, and insights today uh, on the show, and I hope to uh, see those publications uh, shortly and also, of course, welcome you on the podcast again soon. Thanks, Maya. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.